the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 262 CP, Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Here's the situation. It's Nehemiah's job to challenge these, and motivate, I might add, not just challenge, but motivate these defeated, discouraged, miserable people to arise and rebuild the wall of the city. Now, in case you think that you can't relate to that, let me refresh your minds. In case you think that's an easy task, no problem, or I can't really relate to this, um, we're not doing anything like that now. Well, I I want you to consider how difficult it is today to motivate a group of people in the church to do anything bold and daring and new. A phrase heard all too often in churches, especially dying churches, is, that's the way we've always done it, or other phrases of similar meaning. Almost no one likes change, but sometimes it is needed. When Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, he saw that he would never get the city walls built without some changes. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse, a daily Bible class of the year taught by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We have been studying the book of Nehemiah, a wonderful Old Testament book that is too often overlooked in churches and Bible studies. Nehemiah is a treasure trove of practical truths that are every bit as useful today as they were in 400 B.C. Today's class begins Pastor Steve's fourth message in this series. It is a curious fact that the standard distance between railroad rails in the United States is four feet, eight and one-half inches. Why such an odd number? because that's the way they built them in England, and American railroads were built by British expatriates. Why did the English adopt that particular gauge? Because the people who built the pre-railroad tramways used that gauge. They, in turn, were locked into that gauge because the people who built tramways used the same standards and tools they had used for building wagons, which were set on a gauge of 4 feet 8 and one half inches. Why were wagons built to that scale? because with any other size, the wheels did not match the old wheel ruts on the roads. So who built those old rutted roads? The first long-distance highways in Europe were built over 2,000 years ago by Imperial Rome for the benefit of their legions. The roads have been in use ever since. The ruts were first made by Roman war chariots. A chariot needed to be four feet, eight and one-half inches wide to accommodate the rear ends of two war horses. Maybe that's the way it's always been isn't the great excuse some people believe it to be. If you have your Bible ready, turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, and let's begin to see how he motivated the discouraged inhabitants of Jerusalem. Here's Pastor Steve. Nehemiah chapter 2. We've been studying Nehemiah for a few weeks now. It's right after Ezra and just before Esther. Or go to Psalms and then go three back. Okay? And... This morning, we want to begin by looking at chapter 2, verse 9, to the end of the chapter. 
And I read, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well, and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down, and its gates which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate and returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest of, of them who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken uh, to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. In ancient times, in ancient Jewish literature, there was a common term used to describe a rabbi who could solve great problems and remove great obstacles. He was called a remover of mountains. A remover of mountains because... He could do what appeared to just be the impossible, humanly impossible, like removing mountains. So they gave him that, that tag, a remover of mountains. Jesus made reference to this very expression, this very concept, when he said in, in Mark eleven twenty three, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted to him. Jesus specifically spoke about a mountain being removed. Now, the Lord was not encouraging anybody to physically and literally remove the Mount of Olives and, and plunge it 4,000 feet into the Dead Sea. He was not talking about changing the topography of, of Israel, but he was talking about faith in God's power to accomplish what, uh, what, what is, is humanly impossible, like removing a mountain. It's a figure of speech. Figure of speech. Now, as we've already seen in the book of Nehemiah, rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem was like removing a mountain. It, it was a humanly impossible situation. It looked overwhelming. It just looked impossible. So God raised up a man by the name of Nehemiah who became a remover of mountains. The rabbis would have referred to him as a remover of mountains. And it's by his example that we learn some practical ways on how we can face our own mountains, those, those tasks that seem overwhelming, those tasks that seem impossible. You look at them and you say, never do I think I could do this unless God is in it. And so far, we've seen one mountain removed. I mean, Nehemiah is a book uh, that gives us practical wisdom on removing mountains and facing impossible situations. Now, we've seen one mountain removed, and the, the mountain that we've seen removed was that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, and yet God had put in his heart to leave 
the Persian Empire of the city of Susa, serving the king and go to Jerusalem and there to be used of God to rebuild the mountain. I mean, he was basically a, a, a slave, a high class slave. Yeah, he doesn't get time off. That's that's an incredible thing. And uh, besides this, the king a few years ago had had stopped work by an edict, by a decree, stopped work of uh, the people who were rebuilding the wall because he had been told that they were rebelling against him and so forth. So this is a, a mountain that needs to be removed. And in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, we see that that, uh, that mountain is removed. The king does give his approval for Nehemiah to head up the rebuilding project in Jerusalem, and that's what we've seen so far. But once he arrives in Jerusalem, and that's what we're going to study this morning, there's another mountain facing him, and that is the actual task of rebuilding the wall. Now, you may you may say... Why is that such a big thing? Building a wall, how, how difficult could that be? Now, let me explain. We're not talking about building a garden fence. And we're not talking about building even a brick wall. We're talking about building a wall made up of massive blocks around about a two-mile city. These blocks were extremely heavy. They had to be uh, hauled up from the valley below the city. Jerusalem is just made up of a lot of valleys that sink down. That's why you always hear about we're going up to Jerusalem. Even if you're coming from the north, you're going up to Jerusalem. It's mountainous, it's valleys, and so forth. And these heavy, uh, these heavy uh, massive blocks had to be hauled up from the valley below the city where they had tumbled down in the destruction. In addition, the people who Nehemiah needed, he couldn't do this by himself, the people who Nehemiah needed to build the wall were a group of discouraged, defeated people. These were beaten people. These were demoralized people. Uh, in fact, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 3, when Nehemiah first received the report, this is what his brother had said to him when he came back from visiting Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. Now, the word distress in the Hebrew basically means misery. They're miserable. They're in misery, and they're a reproach. People are laughing at them. Their enemies oppressed them. Their enemies mocked them. Their enemies laughed at them. These were a beaten down people. These were discouraged. These were defeated. And 13 years earlier, they had tried, as I said before, to rebuild the wall only to have the king order a decree to, to stop it. So here's the situation. It's Nehemiah's job to challenge... These and motivate, I might add, not just challenge, but motivate these defeated, discouraged, miserable people to arise and rebuild the wall of the city. Now, in case you think that you can't relate to that, let me refresh your mind. In case you think that's an easy task, no problem, or I can't really relate to this, um, we're not doing anything like that now. Well, I, I want you to consider how difficult it is today to motivate a group of people in the church to do anything bold and daring and new. If you've been in any kind of leadership capacity, or you'd like to be at any level, or you have a new thought, a new, a new idea for a ministry, you're enthused about something, uh, you tell me you can't relate to Nehemiah trying to motivate a people who personally like the status quo. They don't want to do anything. Or maybe it's not so much in the church. Maybe there's some things in your family you'd like to change. And you, you really know, you think you know what's best, and you probably do know what's best. And you share it with either your husband, your wife, you share it with the kids, you share it with other relatives perhaps, and you get blank stares. Nobody wants to do it. Or at business, not taking it out of the spiritual context here, but in a sense it, it certainly applies. Uh, in business, you're at a certain management level and you go to somebody higher than you and you see something that'll work, but they don't see it. 
Try convincing them and arousing them and motivating them to, to try your plan. That's what Nehemiah faced. But let's get back to the vision for, for something in the church, because that's really in the spiritual context. That's the closest I can see to the application here. You have a vision for a great new ministry. You have an idea for something that you see lacking at Lakeside. You've been thinking about this for a while. You, uh, you see it. You see how to meet a tremendous need in this church, something that hasn't been here for a while. And uh, you've got this, this thought. You're enthused. You're excited until you share it with somebody else. And then the, the person or the people you share it with give you a blank stare and very uh, calmly tell you, we can't do that. We can't do that. We've tried it before, perhaps they say, and it failed. Won't work here. Can't be done here. Might have been done somewhere else, but it can't be done here. You come back from a, from a conference. You come back from something you've seen somewhere else you're excited about, but nobody else catches that vision. Nobody else is enthused. In fact, people uh, pour cold water on your, your vision. Now, how do you convey your vision to others? How do you motivate Christians to do something and, uh, that, that's bold, that's daring, that you think will work, that you're excited about? How do you, how do you share your enthusiasm so they catch it? So they catch it. And that's what we want to look at. Uh, I, I've struggled with this. Every leader has struggled with this. If you haven't, you're not being honest. Or you're a dictator, and you don't have to share it with anybody else. You just do it. And there aren't many like that. Now, you can either be very frustrated, which some of us have, be, have been, or else you can follow Nehemiah's example on how to tackle an overwhelming task that involves others, not just your work. If it were just you, that's another story um, and another chapter. But this is involving other people. And that's what we want to look at this morning. How do you take on a task that looks like a mountain and in God's way, remove it? Well, I see from this passage four steps in taking on an overwhelming task. And I would encourage you to, uh, to take notes on this. Four steps in tackling an overwhelming task. This is applicable for every one of us. And it will keep you from being exasperated. The first step in tackling an overwhelming task is, number one, anticipate opposition. Just anticipate it. We read in verses 9 and 10, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. And when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Just as the king had promised, he gave Nehemiah official letters allowing him to pass through the provinces beyond the Euphrates River. That's the river they mean, beyond the river, the Euphrates River to Jerusalem. He needed, he needed letters of introduction. And he got them. But in addition to the letters of introduction, uh, Nehemiah was given a military escort. And, and by the way, and I don't think I said this in the past, he would be given a military escort because as he goes to Jerusalem, he's not simply rebuilding the wall. He has been given the task and, and the official uh, position of being the governor of Judea. And let me just show you this so you'll, you'll see he does have the king's authority. He does have the king's authority. In verse 8, he requested a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, and for the wall of the city. And then he says, and for the house to which I will go. That's the governor's house. That would be the official residency of the, of the governor. So he needs materials for the wall, but he also needs it for his home. You say, well, aren't you reading into that? Not really, because in chapter 5, 
verse 14, we read moreover from that day that I was appointed to, to their governor, uh, to be their governor in the lands of Judah and so forth. He, he, be, he is the governor. They didn't vote on it. He was appointed that. The king appointed him. So you want to keep that in mind. So he gets a military escort because he's really in the military in the sense that he's a government official. So the word was out now that he was coming because others would hear about this military escort. The trip to Jerusalem at a minimum would take uh, two months, maybe longer, but a minimum would take two months. And everywhere Nehemiah traveled, he had to attract attention uh, because he has this military escort. And so word is out that he's coming and that didn't settle well for everybody. In verse 10, we're introduced to two of the characters in this book that will be the enemies. They, they are the opposition to Nehemiah and the Jewish people in the work of rebuilding the wall. Uh, the two men mentioned here are Sanballat the Horonite, which means from where he was from, Beth Horon, and Tobiah the Ammonite official. Later in verse 19 of this chapter, there's another one who joins them, and that's Geshem the Arab. Now, we know not so much from the Bible, but from ancient historical records that Samballat was the governor of Samaria. So he had some weight too. He had some authority. Samaria was a region in Israel made up of Samaritans. Samaritans were a mixed breed of Assyrians and Jewish people. They were not considered Jews by the Jews. They were not considered Assyrians by the Assyrians. They were a mixed breed. And from uh, this point on, the Jewish people and the, and the Samaritans have always hated each other. In fact, there are still Samaritans today. And you read about the good Samaritan in the Bible. Uh, that's what this is. The, uh, they, the Samaritans despise the Jewish people. The Jewish people despise the Samaritans. Now, we're not told if Sam Ballot was a Samaritan himself. He might have been. He, we just know he was a, a government official of, of Samaria. And Samaria would be in the northwest. So you have Judah here in the northwest, at least from, from my angle. Then Tobiah was from Ammon, which is modern-day Jordan. So you can think of that in your, in your mind. And he was an official there. The, and the Ammonites were sworn enemies of, of Israel. And they were to the east. It would be where modern-day Jordan is now. Now, he was a, uh, an Ammonite official. We're not sure if he was an Ammonite himself. He might have been or just a Persian official. Now, the principle here, just so you have a little background on that, but the principle that I'd like you to see is this, that whenever you, you tackle a task for the Lord Jesus or anything that's of a spiritual nature, you need to anticipate opposition. It just is a fact. It's going to happen. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be caught off guard by it. Don't be amazed. Because every time you engage in a project that is God's will, you can expect his enemy, God's enemy, which is Satan, who is Satan, to oppose you. And, and let's just look at this and refresh our minds. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us about them. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Paul is, is going to make a, an inspiredly profound statement here that should free you of a lot of hassles with people because sometimes we think that people are our enemies. Um, not primarily. Not primarily. Those who, are, who oppose you are really not the one who is your enemy. The enemy is, is Satan. In verse 11, Paul says of Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And one of the schemes of the devil is to use people to oppose you. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I mean, they're not really the enemies, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, I mean, based on the fact that, that this is reality, therefore, take up the full armor of God. He's going to explain what the armor is here, that you ought to be protected spiritually, that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. The way Paul presents it, it is a reality. 
Uh, the evil day is any day you're attacked, and that could be any day. Uh, and, and what he's saying is that stand firm, be fully protected so that when you have the onslaught hit you and the dust settles and everything's flown around and you've been tempted and attacked and all, you're going to be strong in the Lord, not in your own strength. So when the dust settles, you're still standing. You're, you haven't fallen. That's the imagery there. You will be oppressed by Satan. You will be under attack. Because he is the enemy of God and he opposes the work of God. It's as simple as that. And sometimes some of us are just shocked. We go into new ministries and new things with great enthusiasm. And we're just a, a little naive spiritually thinking that everything's going to fly. And maybe you've had a little encouragement at first, but then it seems like everything's falling down. Just expect it. I mean, that's really a good sign. Because if you weren't in the will of God, you wouldn't have the opposition. If Satan wanted you to do it, He'd back off, say, do it. Uh, but he doesn't want you to do it. Opposition is the indication oftentimes that you are precisely in the will of God. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul said, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's going to be persecution. It was Charles Spurgeon who once said, God had one son without sin, but he never had a son without trial. You and I are those sons with trials. And the unique son of God had trials as well. You will have trials as you serve the Lord. First Peter chapter five, verses eight and nine, exhort us, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Now that means you, it means be serious. There's a, there's a time for, for joking. There's a time for humor. But there's a time to be quite serious, be very sober minded, be on the alert spiritually. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, Peter says, resist him. How? Be firm in your faith, have trust in the Lord, knowing this and be encouraged that you're not the only one, that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. It's all believers who are going through this. You're not the only one. Now, sometimes we don't share that with others and we hide these struggles in our own hearts and we think that something is wrong with us. Something is not wrong with you. If you're taking on something bold and, and new for the Lord or even something bold and old for the Lord or even something that's not particularly bold, just something for the Lord. Expect opposition. Anticipate it. Missionary friends of ours once lost all their belongings when the ship carrying those items to their new work in Honduras sank. Many of their friends showed their concern by suggesting that perhaps God was trying to tell them something. Our friends responded that they already knew where God wanted them, and the loss of all their household goods was confirmation that Satan did not want them in Honduras. Within two weeks, supporters had replaced everything our friends had lost except the recipes and family pictures. And our friends served very effectively in that field for many years. Someone once told me, never doubt in the dark what God has told you in the light. We're glad you joined us today for Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff. Pastor Steve has been serving since 1981 at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Should you find yourself in Clearwater on a Sunday morning and don't have a church of your own, we hope you will come worship with us. Lakeside is located at 1893 Sunset Point Road, which is midway between U.S. 19 and the beaches. Verse by Verse is a production of Verse by Verse Ministries, a faith ministry supported by our listeners. If you've been blessed by these radio Bible classes, we hope you will prayerfully consider joining our support team. Here's Pastor Steve to tell you more. I'm Pastor Steve Kreloff with a special message about why people like you choose to support Verse by Verse with their prayers and financial gifts. 
Two things come to my mind. One was a lady who wrote a letter to us and said, you make the Word of God sound easy. I mean, that was, she was saying, you, you make it understandable. And I actually hung that letter up in my office. You make the Word of God easy to understand. And that's really what we want to do. If you've been blessed through verse by verse, please consider supporting this ministry with prayer and your financial gifts. You can call 727-441-1714. That's 727 727- 441-1714 or drop us a line at P.O. Box 5884 Clearwater, Florida 33758 That's P.O. Box 5884 Clearwater, Florida 33758 We have more information about supporting Verse by Verse at our website. We also have today's class and hundreds of previous ones available for listening or downloading. The web address is Verse by Verse Radio. You can make sure you get all our classes by signing up for our free podcasting service while you are visiting the website. The address again is versebyverseradio.org. Our class today was the start of a three-part message. To listen to the entire message without announcements, you can order a CD or cassette. Just call us at 727-239-0306. If you get the answering machine, just leave your name and phone number, and we'll get back to you during normal office hours. That's 727-239-0306. One reason so many visions don't come to pass is that there is not a plan to go along with that vision. It may seem unspiritual. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flint. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.